It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, I have studied the Word of God for literally tens of thousands of hours in my lifetime, and something I've discovered through those many hours of studying is there have been times in my life where I really thought that I knew uh, a passage, I knew the depth of it, I knew kind of the majority of what I could understand about it, and then, you know, after a few years of more spiritual growth, I would come back to that same passage and discover that there was so much more depth to it than I ever knew before, and there was just so much more to God's Word than I thought. And you know, when you study the Word of God, it's kind of like an iceberg. At first, you just see, you know, the, the depth that is there. Like when you look at an iceberg, you see the tip of it and you think maybe that's all there is. And that's kind of how we are when we come to God's word. We think, wow, I've seen it all. I understand all this passage has to share with me. And then as time goes by and you mature, you start to understand, man, the depth that I, I didn't see at first is so much greater than what I ever first understood or first knew when I came to study this passage. Passage. And um, the reason I bring this up is because we have a, a great example in the book of Hebrews of the depth of God's Word. In the last few chapters of this book, the author has been showing us the depth of God's Word in a particular way. He's been expounding upon and bringing insights to an Old Testament verse, just one verse, Psalm 110, verse Four And so far in our study of Hebrews, the author has quoted or referenced this particular psalm four different times. And each time he references it, each time he quotes it, he gives us a new insight into this psalm. He shares something a little deeper than he did the time before. And I just want to you know, remind ourselves so far of kind of the things that we've seen that the author has drawn us to about this psalm. The first time the author mentioned Psalm 110.4 was all the way back in chapter 5, where he shows us how Jesus was qualified to be our great high priest. And we noted that one of the qualifications was you had to be appointed by God in order to be qualified for high priest. And so the author shows us, hey, back in Psalm 110.4, God appointed Jesus to be high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the first insight the author gives about Psalm 110.4 is that Jesus meets the qualification to be our high priest because God appointed him to that position. The second time the author mentions Psalm 110.4 is in chapter 6, where he reveals that Jesus is our hope of heaven. It's because of Jesus and the confident expectation that we have in Him and what He has done for us that we have this hope 
of heaven. The author told us that Jesus was our forerunner and that we are the afterrunner. He went before us to heaven to give us confidence that he is able to bring us to heaven with him. And so the second insight that the author gives us about Psalm 110.4 is that it shows us that Jesus is our high priest in heaven, and because of that, we have the hope that he will bring us to heaven to be with him. The third time the author mentions Psalm 110.4 is at the beginning of chapter 7, where he shows us that God never planned on redeeming us through the Levitical priesthood. And that's why God prophesied in Psalm 110.4 that he was going to send another priest from a different priesthood, not according to the priesthood of Aaron, to redeem us. And so the third insight the author gives us about Psalm 110.4 is to show us that God's plan was always to redeem us through the new high priest in Jesus and the new priesthood through Jesus. Well, the fourth time the author mentions Psalm 110.4 is also in chapter 7, where he shows us that the way Jesus became our high priest was so much greater than the way in which the Levitical priest became priest. The Levitical priest became priest because of heredity. Uh, they received it because they were of the tribe of Levi, or they, they were the lineage of Aaron. But that is not how Jesus became our high priest. He became our high priest according to the power of an endless life, which focuses on Jesus' eternal and indestructible life that the author says he proves by rising from the dead. So the fourth insight that the author gives about Psalm 110.4 is to show us that Jesus became our high priest in a much better way, which was according to the power of an eternal an indestructible life. Now, the reason I reminded us of those four things that we've looked at is because I'm confident that the first time we read Psalm 110, verse 4, the first time in your own study of the Word of God that you read Psalm 110, verse 4, which says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm sure that most of us didn't understand the depth of what that verse was speaking of, like the author of Hebrews here does. I'm sure that most of us didn't conclude, hey, these four things that we have been looking at are connected to that psalm, or are coming out of that psalm. We might now think, well, the author's really gone deep. He's brought up these four amazing things, and so there's probably not much more that he could share with us. It seems like he's covered everything that there is to cover. He's gone as deep as that verse is going to allow him. And if we would conclude that, well, we would be wrong. Because as we look at the end of chapter 7 of Hebrews this morning in verses 20 through 28, we're going to see that the author of Hebrews takes us even deeper into Psalm 110, verse 4. And he's going to share some fascinating things in this verse. And, and as we go through this, one of the things I just want you to be reminded of is just how deep the Word of God is. You know, really, it's inexhaustible. You're never going to get to a point where, like, I fully understand every passage and I, I fully grasp what all it means. It just goes deeper and deeper. And the more we grow in our spiritual maturity, the more we grow in our understanding of God's Word. You know, I think oftentimes I realize, man, I know less now than I thought I did years ago because I thought I knew more because I thought I understood more. And the more I grow in my understanding of God's Word, the more I realize how deep it is and how much more there is to learn. 
And you know what? It's a wonderful experience just to keep digging deeper into God's Word. And so as we go deeper, in particular to Psalm 110.4, through what the author shares with us this morning, the main thing he's going to be focusing on and expounding upon is the eternal nature of Jesus. And he's really kind of highlighting certain things, like we've seen him, you know, kind of focused in on certain aspects of this psalm. And this morning he's going to be focusing on really one word, and that is forever. Jesus is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that term forever is speaking of the eternal nature of Jesus as our high priest. And now the author has already shared some insights concerning Jesus being our high priest forever. We looked at that last week that, you know, uh, he became our high priest according to the power of an eternal and indestructible life. He was focusing on that forever aspect. And you think, oh, wow, we've learned all there is about the eternal nature of Jesus connected to Psalm 1104. And the author's like, oh, no. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Let me share so much more about this eternal nature of Jesus that we see here from Psalm 110.4. And so the author is going to take us much deeper into this very fascinating concept. And these verses, he's going to be contrasting the eternal nature of Jesus as our high priest and also what Jesus is able to do because he's eternal with the temporal nature of the old Levitical priesthood and what they couldn't do because they were only temporal and not eternal. And as the author makes this contrast between the eternal nature of Jesus and the temporal nature of the Levitical priest, he's going to reveal four amazing things that are directly connected to what Psalm 110.4 tells us about Jesus being our eternal high priest. And I want to just highlight those at the start, and then you will, we'll dig into them as we go forward. But first, he's going to reveal to us that Jesus is our eternal guarantee. Second, he's going to reveal to us that Jesus is our eternal salvation. Third, he's going to reveal to us that Jesus is our eternal intercessor. And then finally, he's going to reveal that Jesus has an eternal, perfect character. And so these are four wonderful things for each of us to learn about the eternal nature of Jesus that we see alluded to and spoken of in Psalm 110, verse 4. And each time the author reveals to us something about the eternal nature of Jesus, something about what he's able to do for us, he's going to contrast that with the temporal nature of the high priest and what they were unable to do for us to show that Jesus' priesthood is greater. Now, the first wonderful thing that we're going to look at this morning connected with the eternal nature of Jesus is that Jesus is our eternal guarantee. And the author is going to expound upon that concept in verses 20 through 22, which tells us this. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they had become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. So the author starts by contrasting how Jesus became our high priest versus how the Levitical priest became high priest. And he's already kind of given some uh, 
thoughts about that between heredity and Jesus' power. But now he brings another aspect of how they became high priest versus Jesus. And the contrast is that Jesus was made high priest by an oath from God, but the Levitical high priest, none of them were made high priest by an oath from God. And there's something specific. The, the oath that he is referring to is the oath that God made in Psalm 110, verse 4. And he quotes that. And he's emphasizing the aspect of where God swears, where God makes an oath. And what did God swear? What was the oath he made? He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the oath that God is making about Jesus and his priesthood is that it's a forever priesthood. You're going to be a priest forever. It's going to be an eternal priesthood. Now the author is emphasizing that God never made that kind of oath to the Levitical priests. He never said to any of them, you're going to be a priest forever. You're going to have an eternal priesthood. And the author wants us to understand, God never planned on the Levitical priesthood being eternal. It was always something that was to be temporary. And so he never made that kind of oath to them. He never said to them, you'll be forever, you'll be eternal, because your, 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 your purpose in my plan was always just to be something that was temporary, something that would point to the eternal, which would be in Jesus. And so God always intended the Levitical priesthood to be temporary, and he always intended Jesus' priesthood to be eternal. Now, because God made Jesus' priesthood eternal and the Levitical priesthood temporary, the author tells us something very important that Jesus' priesthood, because it's eternal, can do for us that the Levitical priesthood, because it wasn't can't do, and he says it in verse 22, he says, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Now, this Greek word translated surety means to guarantee something. The word was used for someone who would guarantee someone else's loan or used for someone who would... Um, pay the bail of a prisoner to guarantee that that prisoner would show up uh, to court. You know, when my family and I moved back to the States from the mission field, we didn't have any credit here because we hadn't paid any bills in America for over 10 years. And so we wanted to buy a house and no bank would give us a loan for a mortgage because they're like, well, you have zero credit. And we didn't have bad credit. We just had no credit. And so the only way we were able to buy a house in Georgia was because Jenny's parents we're willing to co-sign the loan. And so what they are telling the bank is, hey, we are the guarantee for them. If they can't make the payment, if they can't you know, follow through with what they're uh, signing up for, we will be the ones who pay for it on their behalf. And they accepted them as our guarantee because they had good credit, they had good income, and most importantly, they had collateral. So if something were to happen, they could say, hey, you know, here's our house or here's the things we have in order to pay for this. And so the bank gave us a loan, not because of uh, our uh, credit. They gave us a loan based on the guarantee of Jenny's parents that they would pay the loan if we couldn't. And that's what this Greek word translated surety means. It speaks of someone who is guaranteeing something on the behalf of someone else. Now, notice that the author tells us that Jesus... He's the one who is, not that he's just making the guarantee, but he is the guarantee for us. 
He says, Jesus has become the surety or, or guarantee. And notice what he's the guarantee of. A better covenant. You know, we just looked at last week, you know, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, how much better and greater the new covenant is. And the author, he just got done sharing that. But the question that someone might have asked is like, how can I be sure? You know, this new covenant sounds so great and all that's connected with it sounds so wonderful. But how can I be sure that Jesus can give me that covenant? How can I be sure that that's something that he's able to do for me? Well, the author answers that question right here in verse 22. You can be sure that you have this new greater covenant because Jesus is the guarantee. You see, under the old covenant, the people had a mediator in Moses. He would mediate between them and God. But you know what they didn't have? They didn't have a guarantor. They didn't have someone who would say, you know what, even though you fail, I'm still going to guarantee the things that you would receive if you were successful. You see, the way the Old Covenant worked is the people obeyed God, they would be blessed. And if they disobeyed God, they would be cursed. Right? Their problem was they never were able to completely obey God. They continued to fail, and they had a mediator, but they didn't have someone to guarantee when they failed. He couldn't guarantee success, couldn't guarantee God's blessing, But the new covenant is so much greater because guess what? Just like the people in the old covenant, we fail as well. We can't meet God's perfect standard, but there's a difference. We have the guarantee. Jesus guarantees that even though we fail, the blessings are still there for us. Even though we fail, forgiveness is still there for us. Even though we fail, the love of God is still there for us. Even though we fail, salvation is still there for us. And He is the guarantee Himself. And the wonderful thing about the new covenant is that it depends completely on Jesus, on what He did and not at all upon us and what we do. The old covenant was the opposite. It was completely based on, all right, God says, I'll do my part if you do yours. So it was based on what they did, and they failed to do it. And the new covenant's like, God says, I do it all, and it's not based on you at all. I'll do all the work. I'll do everything. I'm the guarantee. I'll make sure it happens. Paul says something similar to this in first, 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, For all the promises of God... In Jesus are yes and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. The promises of God are yes, I'm going to give it to you, amen, it's yours. How? In Jesus. You see, what the author is saying here is that Jesus is a guarantee to us that we will receive the promises that God gives. Now, two questions people might ask concerning these guarantees is how can we know that Jesus is able to give it? And how long does this guarantee last? You know, I'm sure as you buy things and, you know, they have these guarantees that they offer. You know, we have these types of, of, of questions in our mind of like, how good is this guarantee? Depending on, you know, if it's a used car, it's probably not a very good guarantee. And the used car salesman might be a good salesman, but you might be thinking in the back of your mind, like, you know, how good is this guarantee really for me? How long is this going to last? And, you know, a guarantee is only as good as the person making the guarantee. And this is why what the author is going to tell us at the end of this chapter in verses 26 to 28 about Jesus' eternal, perfect character is so important for us to understand because it's going to reveal to us why we can trust Jesus' guarantee and it's going to reveal why we can know that He is able to guarantee us the new covenant. 
Now, another thing about a guarantee is it's only as good as long as the person giving it is alive in order to follow through with the guarantee that they offered. You know, with my pool cleaning company, I guarantee my clients that if there's ever an issue that I'll come back, you know, I'll deal with that. I'll personally be out there. I'll rectify whatever the problem may be. But my guarantee is only as good for as long as I live. You know, if today I drove home after church and I died in a car crash and Monday morning, you know, one of my clients calls and they want me to come out and they want me to, you know, follow through on the guarantee that I gave that I'll come out and I'll, I'll take care of their issues. Well, guess what? The guarantee's done. Why? Because the person who guaranteed it's dead. I'm no longer alive and therefore I can't follow through with the guarantee that I said. So the guarantee is only as good as long as the person giving the guarantee is alive to do it. And this is what makes Jesus' guarantee so great. Notice the author connects Jesus' guarantee with the oath that God made in Psalm 110.4 that Jesus' priesthood and that Jesus as our high priest is forever. It's eternal. And so since Jesus' priesthood is eternal, guess what? The guarantee that he makes is eternal. It's one that will never end. So the first thing the author connects with Jesus' eternal nature is Jesus is our eternal guarantee of the new covenant. And because of that, we can be confident we'll receive it and we can be confident we will never lose it. Jesus guarantees that the new covenant is such a wonderful blessing and we need to understand, I get it not because I earn it. I get it not because of something in me. I get it because of everything in Jesus. And because of it, I can be confident it's coming to me because Jesus guaranteed it himself. You know, I think God knew we would need confidence in the new covenant. He knew our struggle to try to work our way to him. He knew the enemy would be lying to us. He knew that there would need to be confidence. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to give you the greatest confidence there is. I'm going to guarantee it. And I'm going to guarantee it in the best way that I know. I myself will be the guarantee. I'm going to give you the greatest guarantee that I can offer. And that is Jesus Christ. And so you and I should be confident in the guarantee of the new covenant that God has offered to us. The second thing the author connects with the eternal nature of Jesus is that Jesus is our eternal salvation. And he expounds upon this in verses 23 through 25. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Once again, the author starts with a contrast between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus. And he contrasts the fact that the Levitical priests, they had many priests because they had a changing priesthood. And the fact that Jesus, he is a solitary priest, is the only priest, and his priesthood continues forever and is unchangeable. Now, the reason that the Levitical priests had so many priests that were constantly changing, the author tells us, is because they were prevented by death from continuing. 
You know, they only live so long, just like you and I. And so you would become high priest, and you could be high priest till your death, but once you died, guess what? Your priesthood ended, and someone who was alive now had to take over as priest in your place. And so there was this continual changeover, because people only lived so long. The Talmud tells us that there were 18 high priests during the time of the first temple and over 300 during the time of the second temple. And so you realize there's this constant change because of death. But Jesus' priesthood is different. Jesus continues forever as our high priest. And because of that, his priesthood is unchangeable. You see, unlike the Levitical priesthood, Jesus' priesthood never changes. Why? Because he continues forever in that role. It's not like, well, you know, I'm going to do this for a hundred years and then I'm going to retire and someone else is going to take my place. It's a forever role. And this is important for us to understand because one of the problems under the old covenant is that when a good high priest died, and there were times that they had good high priests and bad high priests, but when a good high priest would die, Oftentimes, as you look through the history of the nation of Israel, he was replaced by an inferior and sometimes even evil, bad high priest. And the good that that high priest was able to accomplish when he was alive often stopped once he was replaced by this inferior high priest. And so, you know, there would be people who would struggle with that. You know, Eli, I think, is a, a good picture of that. He was a good high priest, and he had these two wicked sons who were going to replace him, and they were wicked high priests. And the Bible tells they were sleeping with women uh, at the uh, tabernacle, and they were messing up the sacrificial system the way that God uh, told them to do it. And ultimately, God slays them dead uh, because of it. But I'm sure that people are praying, Lord, help Eli to stay alive, because we don't want the transition to these guys. You know, we don't want them to be our high priest. We want Eli to stay our high priest but they realize, you know what, eventually he's going to die. And then we're stuck with these jokers, and things are going to be really bad. But you know what, under the new covenant, you and I don't have to worry about Jesus being replaced. We don't have to wonder, well, when's the day that our great high priest in Jesus is going to be replaced by someone different and inferior? Because he continues forever in that role. We don't have to worry about what Jesus accomplished as our high priest stopping. Oh, Jesus, you did so much and so many great things, but, but that, when's that going to end? When someone else takes over in your place, well, he's not going to be replaced. And so it's not going to stop. So who Jesus is as our high priest and what he accomplishes for us as our high priest is never going to change. It's never going to be replaced because Jesus continues forever and he has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, the author really wants us to understand this truth about Jesus is eternal and unchangeable priesthood, especially because of what he now connects it to. He builds that up. you got to understand that because there's something that Jesus accomplishes that you need to know is eternal, that you need to know no one else is going to replace and, and stop that from happening. And notice what he connects it to in verse 25. He says, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since Jesus' priesthood is eternal and unchanging, that means the salvation that he offers as our high priest is also eternal and unchanging. And that's what the author means when he says Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The Greek word here translated uttermost means to the very end, to the full completion forever. 
So what this is saying is that Jesus can save completely and He can save forever. Jesus is able to save to a full, complete, forever salvation. And that's something so important for us to understand. Jesus doesn't just save partly. Yeah, I'm going to take care of three-fourths of your sin. No, He saves completely. He saves us for every sin that we've done in the past, every sin that we do presently, every sin that we will ever commit in the future. And this complete salvation from Jesus continues forever. The complete salvation that Jesus provides as our high priest, understand this, it's never going to end. And the reason that you and I can be confident that it's never going to end is because Jesus' priesthood is never going to end. And since Jesus' priesthood is eternal and changing, the complete salvation that He gives as our priest is also eternal and unchanging. And this is such wonderful news. The complete salvation that Jesus offers is completely secure in Jesus forever. One important question to ask is, who does Jesus give this amazing gift to? Who does Jesus give this complete salvation for all eternity to? And the author answers that question. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Jesus. So who does Jesus give the complete eternal salvation to? He only gives it to one group. Only one group gets it. Those who come to God through Jesus. So if you want complete eternal salvation, if, if you want to have that, the only way to receive that is to come to God to receive it. But you got to come through Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making very clear that there's only one way to the Father, and that's through me. There's only one way to salvation, and that's through me. There's only one way to this guarantee forever complete salvation, and that is through me. You've got to put your faith in who Jesus is, that He is God, and what He has done, that He died on the cross for your sin, that He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And if you do that, the Bible promises you that God will give you a complete and eternal salvation that is secure through Jesus Christ. And that is fantastic news for all of us who have chosen to place our faith in Jesus, that you are completely and eternally saved and you can have security knowing that it's through Jesus Christ. So the second thing that the author connects with Jesus' eternal nature is Jesus is our complete eternal salvation and because of that, our salvation is secure through Him. And I want that just to, to comfort you this morning. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, just be reminded, hey, you are completely forgiven. You are eternally saved from your sin, and you're secure in that salvation because it's not based on you. It's not like, well, uh, I have it for as long as I'm good enough. No, you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. That's the whole point. Jesus was good enough, and it's based on Him. The third thing the author connects with Jesus' eternal nature is that Jesus is our eternal intercessor. And he expounds upon this at the end of verse 25. It says this, since he always lives to make intercession 
for us. You know, this is another wonderful truth that the author connects to Jesus having that eternal and unchangeable priesthood. One of the things that Jesus always does as our great high priest is he always lives to make intercession for you and for me. You know, the Greek word translated intercession means to make an appeal, to make a petition, to entreat, to make intercession. And this is typically something that is done uh, by one person for another. And when you're interceding for another person, when you're making an appeal, when you're entreating on behalf of someone else, ultimately you are representing that person towards the person that you are making the intercession towards. And that is something that Jesus constantly does for all of us who have come to him by faith. He intercedes for us. He makes appeals and petitions on our behalf, and he does that towards God the Father. He represents us before God the Father. You know, Paul describes the intercessory work of Jesus on our behalf in Romans 8, 33 and 34. He says this, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us. You know, here Paul paints a great picture for us. It's a picture of a courtroom. God the Father is the judge. Those who have been uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're the ones who are on trial. And Jesus is their defense attorney. And when the charges are brought against God's elect, brought against those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus, our defense attorney, who has died on the cross for the sins that we have committed, who has personally dealt with any possible charge that could be brought against us, who is now risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus who has done all that for us, He is the one defending us. And so when every charge is brought against us, He is the one who is making intercession for us. He is the one representing us to God the Father. You know, and he's basically saying, this person's mine. I've paid for that sin. I took the judgment that that sin has deserved upon myself. It has been paid in full. And so now this person is free to go. So that's one of the ways that Jesus intercedes for us. He's like our, our defense attorney who represents us before God the Father. But another way that Jesus intercedes for us is He just prays for our needs. We see a great example of this in Luke 22, verse 30 and 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. You know, on that night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and he was there in the upper room with his disciples, he knew Peter was going to deny him three times. He tells Peter this. He makes it clear to Peter. And Jesus also knew something else. He knew that Satan would attack Peter. He even specifically tells Peter this. Hey, Satan's going to sift you like wheat. That's what he wants to do to you, Peter. And he warns Peter of this attack. But you know what? He then says something to Peter that should have brought Peter great comfort. He says, but Peter... I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen 
your brethren. You know, Jesus prayed for Peter. He prayed for the attack that Peter was going to go through. He prayed for the need that Peter was going to have. And this is a wonderful way that Jesus intercedes for us. He prays for our needs. John Walvoord wrote this, The doctrine of intercession emphasizes the great truth that Christ never ceases to intercede for His own. While human prayers on earth are limited in both extent and power, the intercession of Christ knows no limits within the will of God. As an infinite person, Christ is able to concentrate His intercession wholly on each individual believer without any diminution or detraction from the needs of any other. In effect, the believer is assured of the intercession of Christ in such a manner as would be true if Christ centered all his love and all his intercession on that one believer. Whatever may be the limitation of human prayers, the believer is assured that there is one who never ceases to pray for him and his needs, and that this intercessor has all power and favor with the Father and accordingly is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You know, I am so personally grateful that Jesus prays specifically for my needs because I know that I need His prayers so desperately. And I hope you are grateful for that as well. The third thing the author connects with Jesus' eternal nature as Jesus is our eternal intercessor and always lives to defend, represent, and pray for us to God the Father. And this is another thing about Jesus that should just bring great encouragement to our lives. You know, when Satan brings a charge against you, Jesus is there to defend you to God the Father. When Satan attacks you, Jesus is there to pray for you to be able to endure that attack. When you have struggles and needs, Jesus is praying for those needs. You know, I thought something very significant about this. James tells us something important about prayer in James chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. It says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man without, with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James tells us something very important to understand about prayer, especially in light of what we've just been told about Jesus as our intercessor. James says, hey, the effective, fervent prayer of someone who is righteous. Oh, that kind of prayer avails much. And then he uses Elijah as an example. Now, here's an example of a, of a righteous man. And look at the effectiveness of his prayer. He prayed, and it was so powerful that for three and a half years, it doesn't rain. And, and I bring that up because I just want you to think, if a sinful guy like Elijah had that kind of power in his prayer just think about the kind of power that is in the prayer of the one who never sinned, of the one who is truly righteous, of the one who intercedes on your behalf and on my behalf, Jesus Christ. If Elijah's prayer is effective to pray in three and a half years it doesn't rain, I can guarantee you Jesus' prayer is far more powerful and far more effective in your life. I want you to think about what you're dealing with right now. And I want you to be encouraged by the fact that Jesus is interceding for you. 
He's interceding for what you're going through. He's interceding for the struggle you're dealing with. And the great thing about that is he has power in his prayer. So much power that no matter what you're going through, his power is able to deal with that thing. Now, the fourth and final thing the author connects with the uh, eternal nature of Jesus is that he has eternal, perfect character. And he expounds upon this in the final verses of chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So once again, we have this contrast, a contrast between Jesus and his high priesthood versus the the Levitical priesthood and their priest. And the main thing that the author is contrasting is the difference in moral character between the two high priests, Jesus and all the other ones. And in the list here, the author gives to describe the moral character of Jesus He's really just bringing up one main truth, one main thing he wants us to understand about Jesus. Because really, if you look at these descriptions, all of them have a similar meaning, bringing up one main point the author wants us to understand about the moral character of Jesus. And you really see that as you define the words that the author used. And so let's do that. The Greek word translated holy means undefiled from sin, free from wickedness and pure. The Greek word here translated harmless means without guilt or fraud, innocent. The Greek word translated undefiled means unstained and not defiled from sin. The Greek words translated separate from sinners means to be uh, not be a part of or partake of the sin of others. And the Greek word translated perfected means to be found perfect. Now, the similar meaning that the main point that the author is bringing with all those descriptions is that Jesus is sinless. He is perfect. And Jesus' sinless perfection, it is contrasted with every other high priest under the Levitical priesthood. And the author tells us, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. So there's all this description about Jesus' perfect sinlessness, and then he says, well, these other guys, they all have weakness. Now, this Greek word translated weakness, especially in the context in which the author is using, is speaking of a lack of strength to keep the law. And that's really every single high priest, that was their problem. God's perfect standard declares this, and they don't have the strength to keep the perfect standard, which means all of them had sinned. All of them were failures. And so the author shares this contrast of look at Jesus, he's the perfect sinless one, and look at all these other high priests. They had this weakness, the weakness of sin. They couldn't keep the perfect law. Now the author shares with us two things to help prove the perfect sinless character of Jesus. First he says in verse 26 that Jesus has become higher than the heavens. This is speaking of Jesus being exalted back to the throne of heaven. Now, the only way that Jesus could go back to the throne of heaven would be if he was perfectly 
sinless because no one sits on that throne unless they are. And so the fact that Jesus is on the throne in heaven, the author says it's proof of his perfect sinlessness, but he gives us another proof as well. In verse 27, he says, who does not need daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You see, every high priest in the Levitical system, before they could offer sacrifices for the nation of Israel, guess what they had to do first? They had to offer up a sacrifice for their own sin. Why? Because all of them were sinners. And so they had to deal with their own sin before they were able to deal with the sin of the nation of Israel. And the author is saying, hey, Jesus, he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Why? Because he's sinless. They had to do that. Jesus doesn't have to do that because Jesus doesn't have any sin. And not only that, they constantly offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It was this endless thing. Jesus offered one, himself. He's not only the one offering the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, and his sacrifice is perfect, and it's once, and it's for all, and it deals with all sin for all time. So the author is contrasting the imperfect, sinful high priest of the Levitical priesthood with the perfect and sinless high priest of Jesus. And it's proved by the fact that he's on the throne and the fact that he did not have to sacrifice for himself Because he is sinless. Now it's super important that Jesus has this eternal, perfect, sinless character. And the reason it's so important is because it gives us the reason why Jesus is able to be our eternal guarantee. Why Jesus is capable of giving us eternal salvation. Why Jesus' eternal intercessory prayer is so effective. It's all because the fact that he is perfect that he is sinless. That's why his guarantee is so sure. That's why he is able to save you and me because he, the sacrifice, was sinless and was able to do that. And that's why his prayer is so powerful because he truly is righteous. So the fourth and final thing the author connects with Jesus' eternal nature is Jesus is our eternal, perfect, sinless high priest, which enables him to be our eternal guarantee, salvation, and intercessor. And I just want us to close this morning remembering the sacrifice that Jesus, our eternal, perfect, sinless high priest, made for us on the cross. And as we remember that sacrifice, let's remember it wasn't like the sacrifices under the Levitical system. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. It was a once-for-all sacrifice. It completely dealt with our sin forever. And it was made secure because it's based solely on Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and not on any works that we do to try to earn that salvation. And we're going to remember this perfect sinless sacrifice by taking communion together. And so can I have the worship team come on up and they're going to lead us in a song of worship. And uh, a majority of you probably grabbed uh, the communion elements as you came in uh, this morning. If you haven't grabbed that, just go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get some of those communion elements. And I just want to encourage you, as the worship team leads us in worship, this is a time where we just really want to uh, just deal with any unrepentant sin in our life. You know, there's so often we come to this point where we're remembering what Jesus did for us and we need to realize that, hey, 
We need to confess that. And so I want to encourage you, if there's sin in your life that you know of, that you haven't dealt with, before we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, as we're just taking this time to worship, I want to encourage you just to get right with the Lord. Repent of those things. Ask for His forgiveness. And just prepare your heart for this great time to remember Jesus' sacrifice.
night that Jesus was going to be arrested and he warned Peter of his denial. He knew of Judas's betrayal. He knew of the fact that the disciples would abandon him. He knew the sin that each one of them had committed and would commit. And that is why he was going to that cross to pay for those sins. And he tells them, I want you to remember me. Remember the sacrifice. Remember what I do for you on this cross. He takes the, the cup. He says, you know, this is my blood. This represents it. The, the blood that's going to be shed for you. I want you to take it remembering that. And, and this bread is, is representative of my body that's going to be crucified for you. As we look back at that amazing demonstration of sacrificial love for us, Jesus wants us to remember what He did. But also to remember what it did for us. That enabled Him to be that guarantee for all eternity of this new wonderful covenant. He's our eternal salvation that we are secure in Him because He has paid the full price. There's nothing else that needs to be paid. We can be confident that our sin is dealt with. He is that amazing intercessor for us because He is that perfect, sinless God. And so let's just take a moment to thank Him for what He's done, and then we're going to partake of communion together. Father, we are so thankful that You love this world so much that You sent Your only Son. Jesus, we are so grateful that even in the garden, as You prayed, let this cup pass, You said, not my will, but Yours be done. You willingly went to the cross for us. You willingly were beaten and mocked and crucified. You willingly took the judgment and wrath of Almighty God upon Yourself. The wrath that we deserved so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free, so that we could have a relationship with You. This morning, we just want to look back and remember. Look back and offer our gratitude and thankfulness for that wonderful, wonderful act of sacrificial love that has changed our eternal destiny forever. We were bound to hell and now we have the hope of heaven. We are so grateful for what you have done, not only to save us, but to change us and how you pray for us. You intercede on our behalf. You defend us. You represent us. And it's all because of that work on the cross that you did for us. And we are so thankful for it. So we want to remember you as you told us to. By partaking of these elements, representing your shed blood and your crucified body. Let's go ahead and take these elements together. Lord, as we just look back and see that powerful, powerful demonstration of love for us, I just ask that you would encourage us this morning. Remind us of how much you love us. Remind us of the wonderful truth that you are our eternal guarantee. You are our eternal salvation. You are our eternal intercessor. And you are eternally perfect and sinless. And because of that, you can do all that you tell us you can do. That you truly are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by you. But when we go by you, all the things that you offer, all the promises of God in you are yes and amen. And we are so grateful for that. And I pray that you would just encourage us this morning, encourage us as we go about our just daily life this week, Lord, just with all you are 
and all we've been given because of it and how it has changed our life both in the present but also for all eternity. We are so thankful that we have a God as amazing as you. We only love you because you first loved us and we are so grateful for that. And we pray that you would help us become a little more like you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we finish in the song of worship, just a couple of announcements. This Thursday, uh, we'll have our home group. It's going to be at the Weldons. So come at 6 uh, for food and fellowship. And then 7, we'll start a time of worship and teaching and prayer. And it's going to be a good time to get together. And, um, you know, a few weeks back, I mentioned that we needed a new camera. Uh, our other one broke and it was, you know, not giving a very good picture for those online. And so uh, many of you generously gave. And so we were able to get a great new camera. And if you've ever looked on the live feed since then or uh, on Facebook Live or YouTube, you would see that the, the camera is much more crisp and clear and great. And so appreciate all those who gave. I know those who are at home, I'm sure, appreciate it even more uh, that they can actually see clarity with what we're doing. Uh, but we also just wanted to mention that we have one other need if you would be led to give. Uh, we need a new keyboard for worship. Uh, and it'll be a few hundred dollars. And if that's something that you want to uh, give towards, you can give through the tie box and just write keyboard, or actually you can go online and there's a drop down menu where it says that uh, either one would be uh, appreciated. So if that's something the Lord leading you to do, uh, that would be great. But uh, let's just stand and we'll finish in a song of worship to the Lord.
see us, they would see you, Lord, and that you would be exalted. So would you go before us, allow us to walk by your spirit according to your will, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.